You're listening to the audio ministries of First Baptist Church of Troy, Texas. You're invited to join us for live and in-person morning worship every Sunday morning at 1045 a.m. Visit fbctroytx.org for a list of our activity times and family-centered community ministries. Now here's today's message. And we're here to worship the Lord, and we're here to continue on in the series that we started a while back, uh, Christ in the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking at three books today. Uh, Sermon won't be any longer. Much. No, it won't be any longer. Uh, We'll be looking at Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai. Kind of throwing Haggai in because it works in with what we're going to be doing uh, here in uh, Ezra as we look at Ezra in a minute. Uh, and uh, as we look at uh, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, I just want to kind of give you a little bit of history of uh, how of those books. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll usually find that they are split in two. The book of uh, uh, Nehemiah is a separate book from Ezra. But in the Hebrew tradition, they are one book entitled Ezra. And Nehemiah is simply just the second part of Ezra. And it wasn't until the uh, third century that it was divided into two uh, in the Latin Vulgate, uh, and it was known as 1st Ezra and 2nd Ezra. And then in the uh, 15th century, uh, that's when they were separated into the Hebrew manuscripts, and therefore the Hebrew Bible, and they became known as Ezra and Nehemiah. And they're named that way because Ezra and Nehemiah are the major players in both of those books, both of those sections. And that's how we find it in our translation, our English Bibles today, of Ezra and Nehemiah. But back in Jesus' day, when Jesus was looking at the Scriptures, it wasn't known as Ezra and Nehemiah. It was just known as Ezra. So Jesus knew this book as Ezra, by the name of Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah are also uh, the last historical books in the Old Testament before the New Testament picks up around 400 years later. So they are as historical books saying what's going on. They're the end of the Old Testament historical books, and then you get into the New Testament, which starts up again on that. Now, looking at, we'll be looking at Haggai here in just a second. Uh, and Haggai is uh, also a very important book, but it's considered as a minor prophet. And, and whenever you see and somebody says, well, these are minor prophets, that doesn't mean they're of any less importance than the major prophets, such as Isaiah. The reason they're called minor prophets is because the books are short. That's the whole reason. That's the only reason they're called minor prophets, is because of the length of the book. Uh, But uh, during this time period of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai, the Jews have been in exile. Okay, they've been in exile. Babylon put them in exile. Persia beats Babylon, and now they're still in exile. But now then, under the Persian rule, they are now able to come back. And about a half a million or so Jews were in exile. And about 40,000 are returning now to Israel. And in these books, in Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai, uh, like those we've looked at before, we find imprints of Christ. We find the imprint of Christ showing the Christ to come. 
if you will. And the first thing that we see as we look in the book of Ezra is we find a temple builder. We find a temple builder. Uh, and even though uh, we're looking in the book of Ezra, that's what we're going to be looking at here. We're not going to be looking at Ezra, although we could, but we're going to be looking at a man called Zerubbabel. You go, why Zerubbabel? That's just a fun name to say. Let's just be honest. Okay, everybody, just say it, Zerubbabel. See, it's fun. Just kind of flows off you there, right there, right? You got Zerubbabel. And uh, what has happened, kind of going back, God, is prom God promised King David that one of his own descendants uh, would be the special uh, messianic ruler of God's kingdom. He said, you know, it's from David's line that the Messiah is going to come. Almost 500 years later, after God made that promise to David, uh, that royal line was jeopardized when Babylonia captured Jerusalem and they hauled off King Jehoiakim, who was David's offspring. They hauled him off into captivity. Now, what was customary in that day is that when, when the king got captured and he got hauled off, he got put to death. That was just the way it went. They put the king to death. They put all of his family to death. They got rid of any possibility of any leader rising up and leading the people against them. But for some unknown reason, called God, right? It's all in God's control. Uh, he wasn't killed. He wasn't killed at all. Instead, he was thrown into prison, and for decades he stayed in prison. And it seems as if God has forgotten his promise to David. Finally, 37 years of imprisonment later, Jehoiakim is mysteriously freed by the new king of Babylon. Mysterious, right? Who was in control of that? God, you got it. And he was treated kindly, he was given a place of honor, and he was taken care of for the rest of his life. Now, I don't have the scripture on that, but that's in 2 Kings 25, verses 27 through 30, if you're taking notes. That's 2 Kings 25, 27 through 30. So he is freed. So Jehoiakim now went on to have a son called Shiltil, and Shiltil has a son called... Zerubbabel. See, I just wanted you to say it again. So you've got Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was living proof that God would not let the, uh, the Davidic line go extinct. And Zerubbabel's blood, he not only carried just royalty, the royalty of Israel, but he also carried the hope of the entire world. Literally. Your hope, my hope, the hope of the entire world. After King Cyrus allowed Israel to return to their homeland, we find it's Zerubbabel who leads the way. Zerubbabel carried the torch of God's covenant. And God is about to do a great work in Israel, one that would ripple through all mankind, and he would use Zerubbabel to play a vital part of this. God used 
Zerubbabel to rebuild the altar because Jerusalem was in ruins. The temple was ruined. There was nothing there. I mean, there was nothing. And so he used Zerubbabel to rebuild the altar and to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. By the seventh month, the Israelites had settled in their towns and the people gathered together in Jerusalem. Uh, Jeshua, son of uh, Jezodak, and his brothers, the priests, along with Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, and his brothers began to build the altar of Israel's God in order to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Here we see Zerubbabel leading out in the building of the altar so sacrifices could once again be offered to God there at the temple site. Then we find in the second month of the second year after they arrived at God's house in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel son of Sheltiel and Jeshua son of Josedek and the rest of their brothers, including the priests, the Levites, and all who had returned to Jerusalem from the captivity began to build. And what they began to build was the temple. They began to build the temple. They began to lay the foundation for the temple. So here we see Zerubbabel leading out in the building of the temple. And folks, all of this is important. All of this is important because it was at the temple at that time where God's holiness dwelt where sin was atoned for, where man met with God. Before, they, where were they going to sacrifice? In order to have their sins forgiven, they had to go to the temple to sacrifice. Well, the temple hadn't been, had been destroyed. There was no place to do. So the first thing they want to do is to get the altar going so that they can start sacrificing, so that they can meet with God, so they can have their sins forgiven. There needed to be a way for man to meet with God once again. And Zerubbabel was not only instrumental in the building of the temple, he was also instrumental in what would be the greatest temple to come. The greatest temple to come. Many years later, when the promised king of kings was finally born, the gospel writers provided the, the genealogy of his biological mother and, and, and legal father, both who were descendants of David. And there on both sides, in the side of Mary and in the side of Joseph, right smack dab in the middle of the Messianic family tree, blazes a name that we should very, be very familiar with by now, and his name is... Nope, Zerubbabel. <laughs> Zerubbabel. Here we go. Then after the exile to Babylon, now this is in the Jesus' family tree. You'll find it in Matthew. Then after the exile to Babylon, uh, jo, uh, Jaco, J, whatever, fathered Shatil. They tell you in seminary, just go on. Uh, and Shatil fathered Zerubbabel. That's in Jesus' family tree. And then in Luke, we find son of Jonan, son of Re, uh, Ressa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shatil, son of Neri. That's in Luke. Again, that's in Jesus' family tree. You've got Joseph's and you've got Mary's line right there. So Zerubbabel is in the line of Jesus. Zerubbabel came to repair the temple. That was what God had him to do. That's what God needed him to do. And Zerubbabel was an imprint of Jesus because Jesus 
also came to repair the temple. The middle ground between man and God and, and offer the only sacrifice worthy of forgiveness of sins. In fact, he surpassed Zerubbabel by establishing the true sacrifice, the true temple that had been promised. Himself. Himself. In his broken body, Jesus offered once for all sacrifices to atone for the sins of man by shedding his own blood. But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of, young, of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse our consciousness from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus offered the sacrifice, the altar, if you will. He was the altar and the sacrifice for us. The destroyed body was his temp uh, or the destroyed temple was his body. And it was raised again at his resurrection so that man can once again have fellowship with the Creator through the living temple of the risen Christ. Jesus answered. Destroy this sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, The sanctuary took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But get this, that last sentence. But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. His body. For all eternity, the earthly temple is done away with. There is no need to have a temple any longer, because it is replaced by Jesus himself, mediating God's glory and God's presence to us. Never again do we have to have an earthly temple to come to God because Jesus provided the sacrifice and he is the temple through which we are able to meet with God. The Apostle John writes this, I did not, he writes this about heaven. I did not see a sanctuary in it because the Lord God and, and uh, the Almighty and the Lamb are its sanctuary. There's no need for a temple. The temple is there. He is Jesus. He is the temple. And rebuilding the temple, Zerubbabel was an imprint of the temple builder who was coming. And his name is Jesus. Not only do we have a temple builder, but we also find a signet ring. A signet ring. We're going to move to Haggai. We're going to move over a few, few books over to Haggai. The prophet Haggai also shows us Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's in Haggai. Okay? He also shows us Zerubbabel being an imprint of Christ. Haggai announced that God would, would vanquish the kingdoms of the world and Zerubbabel was the signet ring, the chosen sign of this promise that it was through Zerubbabel that the kingdoms of the world would be overcome, right? Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judea. Now this is God speaking to Haggai 
to tell Zerubbabel this. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judea. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, my servant, this is the Lord's declaration, and make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. The signet ring was a ring that was engraved with the owner's name on it, uh, uh, or a design that identified his authority. It was a sign of authority. It was used to show the authority of a, uh, of a royal messenger who carried papers that were stamped with the image of the ring. The messenger would come and he'd proclaim and they'd say, well, how do we know that this is right? He said, look, the king's ring is imprinted in it. The royal the signet ring, the royal uh, stamp of the king is on it. And they go, oh, it carries the authority of the king. That's what we have here. It also is used to mark precious uh, precious articles that you would put that on. It was precious. It meant it was something special. It proved ownership. It proved ownership. The signet ring was always carried by the owner, and it was always worn on the right hand, the hand of strength. It was an inseparable and valuable possession of the king. This is what God declared Zerubbabel to be. His signet ring. Zerubbabel was proof of God's covenant. That God was fulfilling what he had told David. That God was, had the ability to do what he said he would do. I mean, think about this. Zerubbabel should have never, ever have been born. He shouldn't have been born. He should never have been. Because his family line should have been wiped out. His grandfather should have been killed. But he was born because of God's promise to David. Zerubbabel was proof of the authority of God to do what he said he would do. Zerubbabel was an imprint of the authority of God. Jesus was and is the authority of God. Because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And what we find here in Haggai, through Zerubbabel, an imprint of Christ, that God is about to do a great work in Israel, one that would ripple through all mankind, and he would use Zerubbabel, who was the 20th generation ancestor to Jesus, to play a vital part. If it had not been for Zerubbabel, folks, you and I would be lost in our sins. Zerubbabel was proof that God does what he says he's going to do. So we see an imprint of Christ in Haggai by Zerubbabel being the signet ring of God. Then we find a restorer. We find a restorer. Now we're going to kind of back up a few books and we're going to go to Nehemiah. Backing up to Nehemiah. Another person who was an imprint of Christ. And that is the person of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was an imprint of Jesus as one 
who wept over Jerusalem and its people. They said to me, now this is Nehemiah, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The broke down walls of Jerusalem represented the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. And over 400 years later, Jesus also weeps for the same condition of the people of Israel. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children uh, together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So here we find Nehemiah weeping over the spiritual condition of Israel, and we find Jesus weeping over the spiritual condition. Nehemiah called others to rise up and to help him build, to help build with him. So I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned down. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's walls so that we will no longer be a disgrace. Nehemiah is an imprint of the one who would call others to come and to follow him and to build God's kingdom through the church. As he was passing along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Jesus is the one who was building the church. Nehemiah built the walls. He was helping to get the walls built and he called others to help him to build those walls. Jesus is building the church and he called others to help him build the church. He called the 12 disciples to help him build the church. He called uh, those who, others who came along. Folks, he has called you and me. We are the ones called to help build the church. Just as Nehemiah was calling others to build the wall to get rid of the disgrace, we are called to build the church so that we can bring people in and save them from the disgrace of their sins. Nehemiah was an imprint of the one who came to build the wall or build the church. Nehemiah also found out that uh, the priest at that time, Eliashib, had allowed one of his relatives, Tobiah, to move into the room that was set aside for the offerings of God. And instead of the offerings of God being put in that room, he took the offerings to God, threw them out, and he brought his own furniture in and started living in the room. Okay, he made it his house instead of the house of God, right? And so Nehemiah tells us what he did when he found that the temple had been defiled. Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered the rooms to be purified and I had the articles of the house of God restored there along with the grain offerings and frankincense. Nehemiah cleansed the temple. Does that sound familiar to you? 
It should. Jesus went into the temple complex and drove out all those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, It is written, My house is to be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. In Nehemiah, we see an imprint of the one who would come and cleanse the temple. In Nehemiah, we see an imprint of the one who upon when we accept Him as our Lord and Savior, He sets up residence in us and we become a temple. That's what Scripture tells us. We become a temple because God is now residing in us and it is from within He starts residing in us and He starts cleansing us from the sins and the impurities of our lives. He comes in and He cleans the temple up, if you will. Nehemiah restored the walls of Jerusalem and He cleansed the temple and is an imprint of the one who would come and restore our spiritual condition and cleanses us of our sin. So Nehemiah, an imprint of Christ. Last Sunday, Mother's Day, I know some of you may not have been here, but we looked at the book of Esther. And we looked at her being an imprint of Christ and how God brought her to reign uh, for times such as this, is what, as Mordecai told her. You, God, maybe, who knows, maybe God has brought you to be queen for times such as this. And we looked at Esther and how Esther, because of what she did in approaching the king, putting her life on the line, saved the Jewish people. She saved them from total destruction. She was the savior for them, if you will. She pleaded on their behalf. Through her, the Jewish people were not destroyed. Folks, if it had not been for Esther, we would not have the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, or many of the other minor prophets. Because many of the other minor prophets were written in the same time period we're looking at right now. If you remember... The king that took Esther to be his wife was Asuras. He's the one that took her to be wife. Remember, he got drunk, asked his uh, one wife to, for whatever, I don't know what, and she didn't do it. And he said, well, you're no longer queen. He said, I'm looking for a new queen. He found Esther, and Esther became queen. Asuras is also known, if you sometimes see in your Bibles, is Xerxes. That's the same guy. Asuras and Xerxes. Same guy. Xerxes literally means great king. So they're, they're the they're exact same person. Asuras, Xerxes, was the son of Darius the Great. And Asuras, Xerxes, was also the father of Artaxerxes. There you go. Where are you going with this, Harlan? Well, in Nehemiah, you find Nehemiah coming before King Artaxerxes and the queen. The king said to the queen seated beside him and asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? So Nehemiah is before the king and the queen here of Persia. And that king is Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was the son of Asuras. And evidence points that his mother was 
Esther. And there's also speculation, pretty decent speculation, that the queen that was on the throne when Nehemiah spoke to King Artaxerxes was the king's mama, Esther. Now put all this together, right? Without a doubt, whether she was or wasn't on the throne, Esther had influence over the kings that followed her to look kindly upon the Jewish people like we already saw in the book of Esther. Before Asuras, before Xerxes, you could not find one Judean name in the Persian records of government officials. After Asuras, you find hundreds. Why? Esther. And who would have influenced the king to tell Nehemiah, go and build. Here's all the money you need. Except for one who's been, been influenced by a Jewish queen by the name of Esther. Through these books, through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai, we see the movements of God as He moves throughout history, moving people in and out of where they need to be so that His will would be done and He would be glorified and one day would come the one known as Jesus. We see the movements of God. We see the imprints of Christ. And they are not accidents. Folks, there is no accidents. There were no accidents. But there was a purposeful plan of God so that you and I might have the opportunity to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. All of this is God working through history, through Esther, to bring about the rebuilding of the altar, to bring about the rebuilding of the temple foundation and uh, to bring about the, the rebuilding of the temple, to bring about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Trust me, the last thing a king wanted to happen was the walls of an, what was a, an enemy city to be rebuilt because that gave him protection then. But why would he do that? God set it up well ahead of time by this queen called Esther and how it all worked out and how God used it all throughout history. And down the line, 400 years later, would come this one known as Jesus, who 33 years later would die on the cross for you and me and would rise from the dead so that we might have eternal life. Well, folk, it's all there. This is exciting stuff because this is God working as much in the Old Testament as He does in the New to bring about our salvation. Let me ask you to bow your heads in prayer. As we've looked at these books, and I know that a lot of it is more of a history, and I encourage you to go back and read these books because I'm just kind of pulling some things out to, to help you see these imprints. I want you to read them, and I want you to look for Christ. You will find Him. Not just in Zerubbabel, 
not just in uh, uh, the signet ring of Zerubbabel and Haggai, not just in Nehemiah, but you're going to find him in others as well. How God, how it just shows Jesus so that no one, when Christ shows up, no one, the priests, the scribes, the Levites, no one could say they didn't know who he was. It was all there in the Old Testament. Remember, that's the, and, and that's the, uh, the Bible that was used by, by the apostles to show people who Jesus was, to show proof this is who he is because this is what was promised. Here's the imprints of him. And it's for us. So we can see God working throughout history to bring Jesus so no one can say, I didn't know. Today, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you see in, in the studies that we're doing what all God has gone through in order to bring about Jesus so that you can have salvation. So won't you accept it? Won't you say yes to God's salvation by, by just admitting you're a sinner? Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. He knows it already. You're not surprising him. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I want you to forgive me of my sins. And today, I'm wanting you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to be my Savior. Today, I'm giving all that I am to you. I want to follow you the rest of my life. And I'm trusting in you and what all you've done for me for my, in, for my eternity. If you'll pray that prayer. Again, there's no magic in the words, but it's whether you really mean it or not. You pray a prayer or something like it. I promise you, according to God's word, you are saved. And all that God has done through history in the Old Testament led up to this moment of your salvation. Because he saw you. And he wanted to make sure Jesus came just for you. So today, if you prayed that prayer during your invitation time, we invite you just to step out into the aisle and come forward. And just take me by the hand and say, Preacher, I prayed that prayer. We want to celebrate with you. We will celebrate with you. Maybe you're here today and uh, you sure haven't been giving a good accounting of God in your life. You're a believer. But people, by the way you live, may not see it. Maybe today you might need to come and just rededicate your life, recommit your life to the Lord to start walking in the way that you need to walk. And you come up to the altar and pray. Or if you want me to pray with you, I'd be happy to. Maybe you're here today and you need a church home, a place to put, uh, uh, put your membership to say, man, this is family. I want to make this church family. We invite you to come. All I know is this. If the Lord is putting on your heart to be a part of us here, I know you've got gifts and talents we need to make us a better church. What is it that God's calling you to do? What is it he's calling you to do? Maybe it's to call someone and tell them about Jesus. Maybe you might need to do that. So today, during this invitation time, will you do what God's laid upon your heart? Don't put it off. There may not be a tomorrow. Don't put it off. Do it today. Father God, thank you for these books. Lord, thank you how we see you work in history for our salvation. That through Zerubbabel, through Haggai, through Nehemiah, Lord, you have given us imprints of the one to come. The one who would be our salvation. Lord, we can't question because, Lord, we know hundreds of years before his birth, you gave these imprints as proof. So we would know him when he comes. So we have no excuse. 
So, Father, I pray for those that need to know Jesus. Lord, may they do so today. Lord, may those who need to recommit their lives, Lord, may they do so today. Lord, for those that, Father, that you've laid upon their hearts, whether it's church membership or to go tell somebody about Jesus, Lord, may they do so today. Father, whatever it is, may we say yes to you. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would just find freedom of movement in this place. Touch our hearts. Speak to us. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. We'd like to personally thank you for taking the time out of your day to hear our latest message. Do us a favor and send an email to outreach at fbctroytx.org to let us know that you heard us and what you thought of the message. Remember to visit fbctroytx.org to learn more about how we support our local community. Again, thank you for listening.